You could think of integrated circuits, chips, as the smallest building blocks in the nation's critical infrastructure. Recently, the National Security Agency issued detailed guidance on keeping what it called adversarial influence out of microelectronics used by the Defense Department systems. We get more now from the technical director of NSA's Cybersecurity Directorate, Neil Ziering. Neil, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. And in this new guidance, we're basically talking about something called field programmable gate arrays, and that's a branch of semiconductor that can do different functions depending on the software you basically dump into it. Just describe this technology for us so we can get a sense of what it is you're aiming at here. Sure, Tom. FPGAs are a very flexible hardware component. They can be used for all sorts of functions in all sorts of systems, right? They can be used to accelerate networking, communication, cybersecurity. And the main thing that makes an FPGA important for defense systems and other systems is that they bring you the speed of hardware because they are essentially reconfigurable hardware, but with the flexibility that's closer to software. As you noted, you can put a new firmware load into an FPGA and have it perform a completely different function, but at hardware speeds. And in the DoD context, are these mainly used in embedded systems where they might want to change the characteristics of it or, say, programming a missile to do this instead of that, and then you hit the gate arrays, or where else? Well, they're certainly used in weapon systems of all kinds, and they're also used in communication systems. For example, you might have a military radio, you know, software-defined radio, and you want to update it to support a new waveform or a new type of signal, you can do that with an FPGA. And these are programmed by putting them or sending a signal to them, which downloads software to them. Years ago, they used to be erasable with ultraviolet light. There was like a window on top of the chips. Is that still the case anymore? No, I remember those types of uh, UV erasable proms, but uh, that's not common anymore. With most FPGAs today, they would be part of a larger assembly. They would be a microelectronics component on a board, and there would be a memory on the board that at system startup would load the firmware into the FPGA. And that process is very fast. And what is the risk, therefore, that the wrong software could somehow find its way into the gate array and therefore... It would not do what the operator intended it to do? That's correct. That's a primary risk. And the documents that we've published over the last couple of months go into more detail on the threats. But a primary threat is that since these devices are so flexible, an adversary might intervene somewhere in the life cycle from design through assembly and so forth and either degrade the functionality of the device or introduce incorrect functionality And that's exactly the kinds of problems we're trying to help folks to avoid in this published guidance. So besides the act of programming on site or at the moment after in use, there's the danger that they could come with original sin, so to speak, from a firmware built in at manufacture that could change one bit every two years or something. I'm making this up. But that you wouldn't be able to tell that until something went wrong. Yeah, that that's uh, a good point. I mean, a FPGA has to be programmed. Somebody has to create that program, that hardware design to load into it. And that comes from a set of tooling and so forth back through the life cycle. And problems could be introduced at any point in that life cycle. And some of them can be very difficult to find in testing. So that's why it's important for program managers and integrators and so forth to pay attention to these threats 
and that's what we're trying to help them to do, and then mitigate those various threats at sort of all the points along the life cycle of this device. We're speaking with Neil Ziering. He's technical director of the Cybersecurity Directorate at the National Security Agency. And what, in general, is the advice you're giving? What can people do along the supply chain until the field programmable gate array is in use? What are some of the steps that operators ought to take here? Oh, there's lots. The first thing they have to do is understand the system that they're trying to protect and understand uh, how it's built and where it is using FPGAs as components, and then understand their criticality to the overall system function that is being delivered, whether it's a weapon system or a radar or a communication system. And then the documents that our experts have written lay out uh, uh, three assurance levels based on the impact that any kind of degradation or compromise would have on the overall system function. And then you walk back through the life cycle and say, I have to protect my initial designs. I have to evaluate the intellectual property that I incorporate into my design. I have to protect it on its way from the designer to the manufacturer. And those steps are all laid out in detail for the different assurance levels in the documents. And let me ask you kind of, well, two in-the-weeds question. One has to do with risk management, because in a given system, say an airplane, take it up to that level or a ship or something, there are gate arrays used in a variety of subsystems, some much more critical than others. And since these types of platforms operate on a bus, is there the danger that a gate array in a low-risk system could somehow find its evil into the bus and thereby affect a higher level or higher risk subsystem gate array. Oh, that's a, a really good observation, Tom. And that's an important part of understanding the risk of the entire system. So you're quite right. A component that is on the bus of, say, an airplane or on the network on a ship could be compromised and then allow an attacker to move laterally to a more important or more critical component. And that's part of understanding how a given component, let's say it's a particular board with an FPGA on it, how that fits in the overall system architecture and therefore what assurance investments the uh, manufacturer, the integrator, the designer should take when they're building it and designing it. So it is not a simple like chip-by-chip -chip exercise. It's really something that requires a holistic risk picture of the system in which the component is embedded. And my second in the weeds question is with respect to the presidential executive order for agencies to obtain software bills of material when they're buying software, S-bombs. Do gate arrays come with S-bombs since they're software controlled or should they? Wow, that's a great question. So software bills of materials are a great thing and are really going to help software assurance. There is an equivalent for something like a field programmable gate array. And that it would be an inventory or a bill of materials of the intellectual property blocks, as they're called, that are incorporated into that design. For example, if someone's designing an FPGA to run on a bus, they probably won't design their own bus controller circuitry. They'll obtain that from a manufacturer or an intellectual property provider, and they'll just plunk it down into their design. Well, they have to think about where did that come from, how was it tested, how was it assured, and one of the documents in this series is a guide on how to perform that evaluation. And then you would incorporate that list of, hey, what intellectual property blocks did I incorporate? 
would be incorporated into the bill of materials for that entire system. Sure. And by the way, is there any evidence that this potential problem has actually been a problem with field programmable gate arrays? So I can't talk to particular sort of compromises, but I can talk about this general problem that's affected microelectronics, including programmable parts like FPGAs, and that's counterfeits. That's been a problem across the industry of counterfeit parts that don't have the full functionality or the full reliability of the real part. And that is one of the threats that we think about in these documents and how programs and integrators can avoid counterfeits as a problem. Sure, or stolen parts that end up on the gray market and then therefore back into the supply chain. Yeah, those two. All right. And this is NSA that has issued guidance for the Defense Department. Is there any tie-in with NIST guidance maybe for non-DOD agencies that also have systems with FPGAs? Not directly at this time. And I should also say that this is guidance that is coming out of NSA, but it was really written in collaboration with other members across the DOD of the Joint Federated Assurance Centers. And they're, they're centers at the Air Force and the Navy and so forth. So we collaborate with them. There is no NIST guidance down at the sort of deep technical level of FPGAs at this time, but you know we have a close partnership with NIST and the uh, risk management guidance that NIST has you know been publishing for a long time would be relevant in all of the risk analysis for systems of this kind. And this now is in the hands of all the people that you feel should be looking at it? Yes. Well, we're not quite done publishing the entire series, but uh, yeah, we have put the documents out there. They're out on nsa.gov as well as jfac.navy.mil. And our experts who work in this area are connecting with other parts of the DOD via the JFAC to make sure that the programs that are working on highly critical hardware know that this guidance exists and can gain assistance in how to apply it in their critical programs. Neil Ziering is Technical Director of the Cybersecurity Directorate at the National Security Agency. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to some of that guidance at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to 
be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. 
And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. 
Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.